We've begun studying Ecclesiastes, which is one of the most unique and intriguing books in the Bible. King Solomon is reflecting on some of his backsliding years, and he's going to try to convince you to live with an eternal perspective by proving to you how meaningless life is without God at the center. Now let's join Pastor Ross as we're reminded to look to Jesus for our joy and purpose in life. All right, so here we go with Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Father, being in Ecclesiastes has, has been such a blessing. It's reminding us not to play the fool and um, try to have, find life without God, but try to find meaning and contentment and joy. We need to be united in love to the joy giver to the source of our lives. So help us, Lord, not to lift our soul to another, as we just sang, and follow the advice of Ecclesiastes. In Christ's name, amen. So as I was alluding to, we have really just come through a gloomy kind of chore of trudging along after King Solomon. He was once a wise king. Uh, But he has lost his way and life has become meaningless because he has not been obeying the Lord and walking close with him and keeping his commands. And what I mean by a gloomy chore is is that he's been on a relentless, exhaustive uh, search, a futile search for the meaning of life without an eternal perspective, without the thoughts of heaven, without the thought of the gospel. God is working all things together in this crazy world for our good. And so without a personal relationship with God, um, things are pretty grim. And so we have been with him through this gloom and doom search of his. But it's really been kind of an anointed gloom because it really helps us to remember that we got it right. This is the reason we came to Christ. And the gospel was so appealing Because we came up with the same gloomy conclusion that life doesn't make sense. Life is lame and can't be fixed. And God is the answer. And so uh, we are reminded that we who have decided to lose our lives for Christ's sake, we're finding them. And so since we're so prone to wander, even as Christians, this book is so helpful to remind us Oh, you, you stay on that path. You don't go wandering around and try to fill your heart and life with meaningless things of wealth and unbridled passions and even relationships and good things. They can't take the place of your relationship with Christ. And so God allowed King Solomon's backslidden state and his search for meaning in life to really be a blessing and a warning to us. You know, it's kind of like, God used King Solomon. You know, he uses everything. And and even King Solomon's fall from grace serves us. 
That's classic Romans 8.28 because uh, he's, he's saying, well, look at this guy. The, the wealthiest, most powerful, best looking, wealthiest man the world has ever known. He had his own palatial estate. He was king. He had botanical gardens. He had his own zoo. And he had a harem of a thousand women who in the end he called a thousand bitter regrets. So it didn't, it wasn't their fault. They weren't designed to make him happy, but he thought he was gonna be happy that way. So really you remember the song, you know, that goes, uh, well, I'll put Solomon's name in it. Solomon, Solomon, he's our man. If he can't do it, you really think you can? (laughs) All right, that's what Ecclesiastes is saying. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I, I had the money. I, I, to, I had the wisdom to do this search right. So let me do the hard work for you. You, you know, you're going to come up empty if your search doesn't have as its target in the cross hairs, the cross itself, actually, and our Lord Jesus Christ. So the search has finished chapters one through six, right? And the dismal conclusion has been reached. Vanity of vanities, chasing after the wind, this life without God. So now the second half, and we're already in chapter eight. It started at chapter seven. Uh, here's some advice, he says, uh, for living and duking it out under the sun. He calls it life on planet Earth with a limited view of God. God's kind of in the distance. You know, fear him. And and here are some things that will help you uh, get along in this life. And and it's not the fullness of the gospel, but it's wise counsel. And if you do these things that he's saying tonight in chapter 8, you will be blessed. Because what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So in other words, what's good for people with a diminished view of, of God is is good plus with a bonus for those of us who love the Lord. He's saying this. If you follow the wisdom here in chapter 8, you will lessen the sense of uh, futility in your life. You will lighten the burden that you bear, and you will brighten the dark days with a ray or two of sunshine. There are four things. If you do these four things in chapter 8, you will have a lighter burden to bear. So let's begin with the first verse. Who is like the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things? Uh, Wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. So number one, if we're going to go King James, we go distinguish thyself. All right, point number one, distinguish thyself, live with wisdom, because he's going to say, he's been talking about wisdom, even in a life that doesn't make sense for him, he says, if you use wisdom, you're going to be so much better off than the guy who doesn't. So he's going to play up the the benefits of, of living with wisdom. He's saying nothing like playing things smart in this messed up life to bring a little sunshine. So the reason I say distinguish yourself is because he says, who is like the wise man? In other words, they're so rare. Why not you? Why not why why aren't the bright countenance coming from your face? He's saying, who is like the wise man? 
man. He's, he's saying because it's so rare. It's so doggone rare among this planet full of knuckleheads. He says, really, he's saying the multitudes fall for the sexy girl and the stud muffins lines, smooth lines, and, and the seduction of porn. Every other guy on the planet, every other guy on the planet, he's saying, Who's like the wise man? Oh, distinguish yourself, man. The dear woman, the multitudes are taking the extra money and not reporting things on their taxes. Every other guy does that. But who's the wise man? One in a hundred thousand. One in a hundred thousand who are not chasing fantasies and wasting their lives and saying dumb things and getting stuck in stupid arguments. He says, how about you? Why don't you be the one who doesn't run up their credit cards? And just say, well, why don't you just spend as much as you make and save a little? Why don't you uh, be the girl who keeps herself for her husband? Why, why couldn't that be you? Who is the wise one? Where is she? Wow. How about if you had a few answers to things that you can actually explain life to somebody? Why not you? Wisdom's so rare, so wisdom's so helpful, and wisdom makes a difference. Why are they smiling? Why is there life and countenance on the face? Why is it not hard like everybody else's? Because they don't have DUIs to contend with, right? <laughs> Because they're not going back and forth in a crazy cycle with their wife and their husband back and forth over stupid, stupid things. That's why they're shining. That's why he says, hey, wisdom will brighten your face, man, because you're not thumping your head against the brick wall like everybody else seems to be doing. You look at a wise person's life. They do have a different countenance. They have a different joy. They're just kind of carefree. They're not ensnared with all this other nonsense. And so stand out in life, man. Shine with wisdom. Make room for some gentleness and kindness and love. And where do we get this happy sauce? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> the Proverbs for one, the word of God in its entirety for two. And how about James? He says, do you lack wisdom? Try asking God. He generously will give wisdom without qualifying you. Do you know what that means? That means he's, he, you could say, hey, I need some wisdom here. He's going to say, look at you. Come on. Of course you need some wisdom. After you do all of this wrong, now you're asking me for a little help. James 1.5 says, no, no, he won't qualify you. He won't even put, you know, he won't test you out. He just will give you the wisdom. Oh, he says, above all things, Proverbs, get wisdom. Though it costs you all you have, she's better than rubies. And nothing you desire compares with her. So he's saying, uh, who's like the wise man? Make, come on, let's do this. So distinguish thyself, all right? Let's move on. That's piece of uh, advice number one. So, moving on. Obey the king's command, I say, I advise you in the Hebrew, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases, since a king's word is supreme. Who can say to him, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> 
Verse 5, whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. Since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? No man has the power of the wind to contain it. And so, so no one has power over the day of his death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. That's a little proverb that will make total sense to you in a moment. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun on this planet. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. All right, so first one was what in King James? Point number one. Oh, this is a dismal, dismal affair. <laughs> Point number one was, distinguish thyself. Now I'm going to make you all say it again. Ready? Number one, distinguish thyself. Have some wisdom. It's liberally given you. It's all right. Uh, so number two would be, submit thyself. Submit thyself to authority. So, Wise men, they're teachers, right? They advise. He says, I say to you, I'm advising you how to get along in this world, and you will last two and a half minutes if you're not the kind of person who can submit to authority because every square inch of this life has an authority structure to it by God, every so if you're a resistor, if you're, you think you know everything and you, you can pick and choose to whom you will submit in this life, you are going to be in for one frustrating ride, he says. Every square inch. Name a place in your mind. It is, has delegated authority and there is somebody in charge and somebody coming under every square inch, driving on the street. Can't do it. There's laws. You're under. And then little blue lights that go on. You are under, <laughs> right? You're under. Well, what if I went to the middle of the desert? Yeah, it's a national park. They'll come by and they'll ask you, did you pay the seven bucks at the gate? And if you didn't, there you are under, right? No matter where you go, driving, then in a shop, a restaurant, a grocery store, a bank, a post office, a hospital. Think about it. A hospital has its whole chief of staff. And you go down. And, and, and it just goes forever. In every single place you go. Everywhere. In the home. God says, I have an authority structure. I have a husband. I have a wife. I have children. Children come under husband and wife. Wife comes under husband. Husband comes under the Lord. So if you're the kind of person who says, you know what, I kind of do my own thing, kind of a rebel, you know, uh, you, you're not going to make it. You are not going to make it. Listen to what one writer said. No life is a greater failure causes more pain and trouble, reaps more frustration than the person who resists authority structures God has put in place. In the end, an unsubmitted personality is not resisting man, 
but the Lord who delegated all authority and will sadly reap the consequences deserved there. So nowhere in life is this better seen than in governance. And he's going to start talking about himself as a king. Now, it sounds self-serving, but it's true. He's talking about presidents or leaders or authority structures and governance. uh, And he happens to be a king. And so he kind of gets it. uh, He sees it up close and personal. Uh, But so he says, obey the king's command. You took an oath before God. So what does that mean? For Jews, to be a Jew, to believe in Yahweh, implicit in that was that you obeyed Yahweh, you obeyed the law, and you obeyed the king. They are together. In fact, those phrases are used even in, I believe it's Ezra chapter 7, where he says, obey the law of God and the law of the king. And so the people of God have always had an obligation to honor government authority. Old Testament and New Testament. I've, I've had this scripture up before, Romans chapter 13. Sometimes I just think we should meditate on that every single day. Let everyone, big word, be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. No authority in the entire universe, except that God said, I want it to flow this way for the good of order, for the good of civility, for the good of the person being served by the delegation. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority, whatever it is, you have a problem in the checkout aisle. You know, she's telling you, sir, you know, you've got 23 items. I only take 15. And you're like, tough. I'm in a hurry. You're going to go to jail. They're going to haul, you're going to haul you out because God gave her the authority to tell you, get out of the line. You, no, everybody thinks, oh, we're just talking about the president and we're talking about the police officer. That's it. No, anybody who has authority over you in any moment, in any place, whether you're in your your living room or whether you're in the church. There's a whole structure. There's pastors, there's deacons, there's elders, there's ushers. There's a flow. You can't go anywhere. So if you've got a problem, you've got a problem. (laughs) For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. But for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what you're expected to do in that moment, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, you've got an attitude, you think you know better than everybody else, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, all of them. Not only because of possible punishment, but as a matter of conscience. Now, we thank you for that. We can go back to our verses. We also recognize that we are to obey God rather than man if the two contradict each other. Acts chapter 4 and verse 19, the Jewish Supreme Court told the Christian disciples, we forbid you 
to mention that name again in public. And they said, judge for yourselves if you think we should obey man rather than God, because we cannot help but speak what we have seen and heard. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's understandable. King Saul in the Old Testament is, was in one of his crazed road rage uh, moments where he's so consumed with jealousy over King David and his son Jonathan was besties with King David. And so he looked for a reason to get rid of David. He wanted to kill David. But then when Jonathan got in the way, he wanted to kill his own son. So one day, you remember, I think it's in 1 Samuel 14. You know, Jonathan did something. <laughs> it was sort of a trap. And then King Saul said, let him die to his soldiers. Kill Jonathan. And the soldiers said, no can do, king. We're not going to do that. He doesn't deserve to die. You're crazy, and we're not going to kill him. <laughs> so that said... Right? Two practical things that start out, out here in verse 2. Respect authority. Behave properly as a submitted person. Verse 5 says, my bad, verse 6, the boss's word goes. In other words, can't you figure out that when you're in an authority structure, that that person, he hires and fires and signs your check. So can't you figure out that you ought to watch your protocol and your behavior and your attitude toward him? So he says, uh, don't be quick to leave the king's presence. In other words, don't be rude to somebody who has power slash influence over you. You're not supposed to turn your back and say, you know, I've got better things to do than listen to your boring stories, okay? You know, or hey, I've got something more interesting than what you want from me right now, okay? You know, don't be quick to say, hey, I gotta go. No, you're there to make the one in authority uh, kind of pleased with you. That's just common sense. Think about your boss. You want your boss to be pleased with you, not irritated by you because you sent off a vibe like you're not important. I, well, I wasn't listening totally to what you had to say. So he's saying, you know, you don't tell the cop who's interrogating you, you know, are we done? Because I'm going to be somewhere in five minutes. <laughs> That's what this means here. So to be rude or short with your boss is like slapping yourself across the face. Twice. But twice because it's just not smart. You're just not smart. Think. And then he says, and, and always uh, coming up with, he's saying standing up for bad causes. It means telling the king what you, what you think how the king, king should act and decree and all of this. Always coming up with mindless ideas that the, the king isn't interested in or counter to what they want, the boss wants. You're always coming up with the other side of things all the time. Well, it's, uh, wise people appreciate different points of view. There's uh, wisdom in a multitude of counsel, right? Any wise person wants to hear things that they might be missing out on. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about uh, this kind of attitude that just kind of a spoke in the wheels. You know, just uh, 
I'm going to tell you, I was at a church a million years ago. There were a few pastors. I was an associate pastor. And uh, the senior pastor would say things in meetings. And my very close friend, who was an associate pastor with me, to him, and several others, uh, would always kind of be the, 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 the stick in the spoke. But all the time, and I started to notice it. And I pulled him aside, and I said, dude, do you notice you're, you're always bring the other side? You're always, everything he gets his hopes up, and then you just, oh, boom, you know? I said, I just notice it. You're always, always doing that. And, and I just, and he goes, I like to play the devil's advocate. And I said, bro, you are playing a good job there. I mean, you, I don't think any Christian should want to play anything called the devil's anything. <laughs> he asked him to leave. Are you surprised? So he's saying all, all, all of this, um, the, the standing up for the, the thing that the, guy, the king or the person in authority uh, doesn't want to do. And so verses 6 through 8, he's saying he... He's saying, play by the rules, submit to authority, follow the procedures, the proper use tact, but realize, and here, here's always his caveat, right? He says, there's no foolproof formula to life. So he's saying, there's uncertainty, there's going to be injustice that weighs on people's hearts, there's just sadness that happens even when you're doing the right thing. And submitting. There's death. You can't control death. There's mishaps. And but he's gonna. But what he's saying is, it's still better, even though you can't control the end, to live in a submitted, humble way in these authority structures to act wisely in this way. And here's verse eight, the proverb. He's saying. If you're one of those arrogant resistors who can't figure out to respect the authority over you, I, uh, I do whatever I want kind of guys. He says, uh, uh, just like you can't be released from the army once you sign up, if you're that kind of guy, <laughs> a rebel with that kind of arrogance and you don't respect the flow in this life, that you can't be released from the consequences of your foolish behavior. That's the proverb. You can't just sign up for the army and it releases you. Hey, I'm feeling tired today. I want to quit. You know, it doesn't go that way. And so the same way that you are acting arrogant and not <laughs> submitting yourself to how God wants life to go, you won't get away from that. You won't be able to easily opt out of the consequences of... Uh, a life that resists authority in God's structure. So he concludes this unit with the thought, you know, a word to the boss. I like that. Verse 9, he says, uh, and by the way, you who have the title manager or whatever, think of yourselves, all of you probably have somebody in your life that you are kind of a delegated authority over to oversee. And he says, listen, Bossy people who use their authority in self-serving or abusive ways uh, and don't value or appreciate uh, the people who they serve uh, and, and who don't administrate 
uh, as God prescribes with humility and love and sensitivity and kindness and all of that, uh, they wind up only hurting themselves. Matthew chapter 20, we're not supposed to do be bossy. But Jesus called them together and he said, you know the rulers in this world, lord it over means boss people around. And just treat them, you know, to get what they want. And officials flaunt their authority over the, uh, under them. You know, they, yeah, everybody knows what that verse means. We all have worked uh, for bosses like that. Verse 26, but among you, it should be different. Whoever wants to be a leader, you have to be a servant. You know, the boss is supposed to be the servant with a servant's heart for those he cares over and has oversight. And whoever wants to be the first among you must be your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. So, yeah. So what is he saying? Back to our verses. He says, when people resent and disrespect or they're abused, uh, they find ways to express their disgruntledness. Amen? Amen. And I think we've all dis, dis, uh, expressed our disgruntledness at one time. Haven't you ever just kind of shot back a little bit, slandered somebody, gossiped about them, not done your work the way you should have done because you're just mad, right? He's saying, so, oh, boss, watch out with all your little power because it'll turn around and bite you. So, so watch it. All right. So continuing on, verses 10 through 13. Then, too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This, too, is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better. This is his theme from 7 to 12 chapters. This is, it'll go better for you if you're a God-fearing man who's reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it's not going to go well with them. And their days will not lengthen like a shadow. All right, so number one was distinguish thyself. Use a little wisdom. Set yourself apart in this crazy world. Number two, submit thyself to the authority structures in place because all authority has been established by God. He who resists any authority is snubbing God. Number three, now, brace thyself. Brace thyself for the crazy injustices of life. So here's what's going on in this chapter. So far, this paragraph, I should say. He's saying to be forewarned is to be forearmed. He's saying, if you're expecting a Pollyanna kind of life, and you know, Pollyanna was that just, just quintessential optimism of this where everything has this silver lining and every sunshine everywhere and butterflies and all of that. Uh, if you're expecting Pollyanna and you get Star Wars 3, Revenge of the <laughs> Sith, where Anna 
Anakin Skywalker succumbs to the dark side. First of all, I don't go to movies when there's a sad ending and the bad guy wins. I, I just won't do that. I just, just, I mean, if I can avoid it. Or when I see it coming, I'll just get up and walk out because <laughs> it just gets miserable. Where the red fern grows? It wasn't even designed to be a children's book. Did you know that? That was written for adults. You know why? Because it's so sad. At the end, I felt like I was abusing my family, showing them. These two dogs, this boy, I'm telling you the story. These two boys, this one boy buys these two hounds. He saves all his money for months and months and months and buys these two adorable hounds. And he calls them uh, Old Dan and Little Ann. And you are in love with the kid, and you are in love with the family, and you are in super uber love with those two dogs. And all through the movie, you're just, oh, you just, you identify. <laughs> and a bobcat comes out, a mountain lion comes out, ready to kill the, the lead character, Billy Bob, whatever his name was. <laughs> and you know, those two dogs, they went in and saved Billy Bob's life, right? Happy story. But old Dan, he got a bite taken out of him, and it got infected, and he died. Well, my three kids were transfixed. <laughs> that sounded Southern accent, too. <laughs> They're like, what? And I'm like, don't worry. Old Dan has died. But we've still got little Anne. But little Anne stops eating. She's so brokenhearted. And she crawls with her last bit of strength onto the grave of old Dan and rolls over and dies. I said, kids, you ready for bedtime? Maybe a little ice cream? I remember my boys especially saying, what? <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> oh, and if I remember correctly, I shut the thing down a little early. And I, they said, Dad, Dad, Dad. I said, it's bedtime, it's bedtime, it's bedtime. And I rewrote the end of the story. I rewrote it. And then they, would, they could grow up and go to a therapist and say, my dad made up stories. So, you know. <laughs> If, if, if you're not ready for both old Dan and little Ann to both die, Solomon is saying, you're going to be messed up. Brace yourself because this life is broken. This isn't the Garden of Eden. This is called a fall from grace. This is a train wreck. The creation has been subjected to futility by God in hopes that in our frustration of going around in a broken, lame world where little Ann and old Dan die, that we'll cry out to God and say, God, there's got to be more. That's the whole point of the second coming is to reverse that terrible curse. So he says, so, so here's what he's talking about. The wicked seem to get away with murder, as it were, and sometimes literally and figuratively. Uh, are they punished? 
That's what he's asking, because it doesn't seem like they are. And so instead of our condemnation of the bad guys, we honor them. So I, verse 10 is hard to understand here. The New Living Translation, or, or the uh, Living Bible, I should say, has it so easy. I've seen wicked men buried, wicked bad guys buried. And as their friends return home from the cemetery and the funeral, having forgotten all the dead man's evil deeds, these men were praised in the very city where they committed all their crimes. Old Dan and little Ann, they both die. And you better get used to that because in life, in a broken world, this kind of thing happens. So this is what he's saying here. He's saying, I just got back from nasty Nadab. Let's just make up a Jewish name. Nasty Nadab, and Nadab was nasty. Uh, I just got back from Nadab's funeral. He's an ungodly guy, you know, but he was praised. A magnificent funeral, fake tears flowed, eloquent, a eulogy eloquent but disingenuous. Don't get him wrong. He's not saying that we shouldn't be gracious at funerals and find the absolute kindest, most redemptive things to say, to eulogize, regardless of, especially a loved one's brokenness. We, we find the best light for them, right? This is different. This is, this is what he's talking about, is turning a blind eye to a famous person's sin. The way the world creates heroes from these unworthy people and whitewash all their uh, terrible deeds. Politicians who are serial womanizers, just think of a serial womanizer, a pathological liar, a convicted perjurer, embezzler, and, and we name buildings and boulevards after them, right? Why, why do we do that? Oh, I started to think, and I started to think of one, and I thought, well, there's one. And then I thought, oh, there's two. And then I thought, oh, there's three. And guess what, folks? There's more. There's more. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. But wait, there's more. So he says, this, my friend, makes me crazy, and I just see it as meaningless. How can a civilization work if good is bad and bad is good and right is wrong and black is white how how can life work so that's why he says meaningless this life is so broken <laughs> what is vile is exalted and what is true is shunned and considered uh, shameful he's saying when a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it's safe to do wrong, verse 11. So he's saying, you know, uh, in spite of good laws and, and, and fine people who seek to enforce them, injustice is a fact of life. And so it just makes things so much worse. The, the Spanish proverb says, laws are like spider webs. They catch the fly and let the hawks go free. Spider web. Well, you know, the hawks have more money or better lawyers. Okay, that was funny on the page. I don't know <laughs> what happened. Let me try another one. F. Lee Bailey. Where's my wife? I look at you for comfort in these moments. 
F. Lee Bailey, famous trial lawyer, said, this isn't a joke, it's just something he said, in America, an acquittal doesn't necessarily mean you're innocent, it means you beat the rap. Robert Frost, this is a cynical comment, he says, a jury is defined as 12 persons chosen to decide who has the better lawyer. So... Here's his point. He says, civilization cannot operate this way. It just renders everything meaningless. So uh, serious offenders can go free or get a slap on the wrist, but that's really how it works sometime on this planet, and you have to accept that. Uh, Verses 12 and 13, let me paraphrase for you. Even if the bad guys do get off the hook in this life, and even if they get to live a long time, It can't go on forever. Trust me, sooner or later, they will have to face God, and it won't go very well for them. It's only the God-fearing person who, in the end, fares well. But what a bummer in the meantime. We got to live here. We got to live here, you know? And then P.S., along the same lines, verse 14 There's something else meaningless, a little P.S. along the same um, brace thyself that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So he says, um, nothing can derail you like when righteousness is punished and wickedness is honored and exalted. So uh, I was already saying this already. Truth-tellers are hated, liars are loved. The bad guys are the good guys, as I've been saying. And so when God's heroes are martyred and workers of evil are memorialized, terrorists who mow down people in the name of God are praised in some cultures, and pastors in the same city there in the Middle East are condemned and imprisoned. Now, that's an upside-down world. So he says it's tough, but it's the way it's done here under the sun. But he says, listen, did you expect something else? I'm saying this. Did you expect something else? The Son of God, the perfect incarnation of perfect goodness, perfect love, perfect righteousness, and perfect truth poured into a human body And we collectively crucified him to a cross. So we shouldn't be so surprised that the world's upside down because they called the Son of God Satan. And Satan is elevated and worshipped as God. Maybe not overtly. So he's saying... (laughs) They've got something called, let me see if I, if I wrote this one down. Spatial orientation phenomenon. Harvard came up with this because a woman in Serbia, she sees everything upside down. And they don't understand why it's being projected to her mind really right side up. And it's supposed to be projected upside down. And the brain flips it. But for her... She sees everything upside down. So she has a television next to her family's television that's completely upside down. And she has to watch it like that. Well, you know what? 
But here's what he's saying. Get used to it. The world has this disorder that right is wrong and wrong is right and good is evil and evil is good. And you live in it. And it's no fun. But you have to understand that you are living, you're walking up a down escalator. You're the salmon going upstream, man. You live against the grain. You march to a different drummer. And you have to understand that. So brace thyself. Don't act so like, whoa, look what happened. It's supposed to be like that. It's the fall. But let me tell you about this. The Lord is coming. And the kingdom that's coming that's right around the corner, coming to a neighborhood near you, (laughs) is a kingdom of justice, goodness, righteousness, truth, peace, love, and joy. I'm looking forward to that. Amen. All right, let's finish up. Let's put chapter 8 to bed, 15 through 17. So I commend, so here's this conclusion. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing (laughs) is better. If we have to live in a world like that, then you better enjoy yourself a little bit because nothing's better for a man under the sun in this mixed up crazy world that I just described than to eat and drink and be glad. We'll talk about that. Then joy will accompany him in his work. All the days of his life, God has given him under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and observe man's labor on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all of his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. All right, let's talk about this last one. So, to go over the points again, number one, he says, if you want to get ahead, if you want to do well on Planet Crazy, then you need to... (laughs) I like that one. Come on, Planet Crazy. Number one, distinguish thyself, right? Make some smart choices. Live like God wants you to live. Number two, submit thyself to God's authority structures. Number three, brace thyself for a world that has spatial orientation phenomenon. And the last thought, enjoy thyself. Okay, so he says you best maximize the little pleasures in life. And this has been about probably the fifth time he said this, and he's going to say it again. This is Solomon's big uh, ticket Advice. He's saying, you know what? You might as well maximize those little pleasures because life is really hard. So let's talk about that. He's saying, you can't change it. You can't fix it. You can't run from it. You can't reason with it. You can only cope with it until the Lord comes back. That's the idea here. And so... Uh, verse 16, why are you going to let it get to you? So we, we labor, our eyes not seeing sleep day or night, never sleeping, never resting properly, because you're stuck in this dysfunctional cycle and where the joy of life has been drained out of you because of the corruption in our own hearts, the corruption in the world, the corruption in the government. The spatial orientation phenomenon that we're stuck in? He says, so listen, I want to talk to you about advocating little things, the little joys. Table fellowship, we've talked about this, friends and family, 
the good feeling of a job well done. There's nothing wrong with this advice. There's nothing wrong with it. It's really good advice because how much more should we be enjoying life with the fullness of the gospel, with Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives? So he's saying, you know, live right. Fear God. It will go better for you. Fine. Yeah. Love your family. Quality time with loved ones, fun weekends, evenings, getaways, vacations, birthdays. He's saying, you know, I got a song for you, all right? It goes something like this. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and for you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yeah, it's got spatial orientation phenomenon, right? But, you know, there's some beautiful things, especially for us who have been reconciled back to God and his kingdom has already come into our hearts. It's starting. So, so he's saying, so you're going to lose sleep? So you're 24-7, can't find rest? That's in there? He's saying, what's wrong with you? You're going to have to enjoy the ride even though it's crazy and upside down and enjoy the ride. Find things that bring you peace. I see skies of blue and clouds of white. <laughs> the bright, blessed day, the dark, sacred night, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. There's lots of things for us to find pleasure in, especially when we have the gospel. How can I find anything good about where I work? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. A hairdresser I know uh, once said, you know what? I love my job so much. I don't really like cutting hair, but I love my job so much because every God, I just pray in the morning, God, send me those who need to hear a little bit about you, maybe need to be encouraged, maybe need, I'll pray over every single person who goes in the chair, every single one, for as long as you give me this job. And she just thought it was like, it was an amazing, because she went to the chair thinking, what am I going to hear? What, who did God send me? You know, and he, she was thinking, Whoever's in the chair has been prepped and primed and hand-selected by God to bring to her to be listening. And then just, she, just, she just loved her job. She didn't like the haircutting. <laughs> she loved her job. Come on, you can wash dishes for Jesus. You can do so many things to find. This is what he's talking about. So he's saying life is lame. Beyond cure, humans... Hearts are sick beyond remedy. Rulers, the government falls short. short. <laughs> and the New Testament says, but one day, soon and very soon, the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so, yeah, Christian, bacon and eggs and good coffee in the morning... You know, I like going to sleep at night because I know I get to drink coffee in the morning. I mean, I get so happy about it. And I know I get to eat. And, and so I'm excited, you know, and happy. Uh, sunsets, yes, Christian, listen. Sunsets at the beach. Go to the symphony. Go ahead. Road trips, pillow fights, random acts of kindness, working hard with excellence, building your self-esteem in a good, godly way. But don't forget the Christian parts, the Christian parts of enjoying life. Save others by snatching them from the fire. 
That'll make your day happy. Show someone mercy who doesn't deserve it. Guess what? That's what mercy means. <laughs> they don't deserve it. Well, why should I do it? They don't deserve it. Because that's what mercy <laughs> means. <laughs> oh. Forgive somebody's debt. Overlook an offense. Clean up somebody's mess. Stand up for somebody. Give someone a gift for no reason. Shine some light into somebody's darkness. Build someone up who's been torn down. Share the gospel, the good news. Do a good deed. Let's think, well, I'm going to do a good deed today. Let someone off the hook. Why not? It's the year of Jubilee, man. You're saved. You're going to heaven. God lets you off all, everything. Everything, and you expect him to, too. Past, present, future. You let me off of every single hook, and then I'll decide who I let off the hook or not. (laughs) That's not good. Let someone off the hook. This is how you get joy. Give an extra offering. Take a walk with the Lord. Write him a song. Lift up your hands. If you've never lifted up your hands and it says, we stand and lift up our hands, and you're like, (laughs) you know? Just a little simple nothing that just says, God, you lifted up your hands for me. You know what? I'm going to get over this, and I'm going to lift up my hands. And the joy of the simple pleasures of the Christian life of just saying, you know what? What am I doing If I can't lift my hands with Christians in the room praising my Lord, how am I ever going to share the gospel out there in a world that is a Christ-rejecting world? Amen? Thank you, that one woman. (laughs) Pray for three people before you leave here tonight. You go home feeling a little bit different because you're not just thinking about you and your problems. These are the things. Volunteer to help in children's ministry. Whoops, how did that get in there? (laughs) All right, so listen. So yes, the sun sets. Yes, the spaghetti and a glass of wine. He says, drink. Listen, do I have to even say this? He's already called uh, drunks fools. It was a disgrace in Jewish culture for a man to be inebriated. A total disgrace. So when he says, you drink your glass of wine, you drink your glass of wine. And you're not a problem drinker, and God hasn't told you no wine. It's not saying, hey, live it up, because life is so hard, man. You might as well just go home, get drunk. (laughs) Not saying that. He's saying, you can have your glass of wine with your spaghetti. And enjoy life. So, chapter 8 says this. In this messed up life, we want to get along well. Distinguish yourself by living wisely. Submit yourself by coming under authority. Brace yourself for the inequities of life. And don't forget to enjoy the ride, as bumpy as it may be. Let's pray together. 
Now, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would apply these truths into our understanding so we can practice them and be blessed in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.